1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 12. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly unbelief, in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. An acquaintance of yours, knowing that you are a Christian, pleads with you to go visit her nephew who is in the county jail. This young man has been arrested again. This is not the first time. But this time it looks like he is going to spend some major time in prison because he has now taken the life of another person. You are told that he is truly broken. You are told that uh, he is nearly suicidal, thinking that there is no hope for him whatsoever. He has no life on earth. He's in prison now. And he feels personally there is no life beyond this life on earth because he is so wretched. And you have been asked to go to the jail and speak to him about Christ. I don't know about you, but I would be nervous in a situation like that. There would be some anxiety in my heart to speak to a person in a situation like this. What could I say? What might I say to him that could be of help? In our previous lessons, two lessons, actually three lessons in this particular section, we're considering some scriptures to give to those who are not anxious to be saved, but need to be saved. In our first lesson, We looked at those who are anxious to come to Christ. They really wanted to be saved. What are some scriptures that you might give to them? And last week we thought about that person who is willing to listen to you, but who is not really interested in being saved. He'll spend some time hearing because he has a relationship with you. He's willing to listen to what you have to say, but he is not interested in Christ, and he's not really interested in salvation. Well, with this lesson, at least one more to come after this, let's consider some people with special conditions. I think we could say that we don't run into someone who has been convicted of murder very often. That's something rare. And after the reading of uh, our scripture in 1 Timothy, I hope that you have an idea where to begin to speak to this person. We'll give you some other ideas here in the next few minutes. And by the way, there is no pattern for you to follow. This is not a template that says you have to do this in order to lead murderers to Christ. 
This is just some ideas. And the Lord may throw these aside in your mind and give you something else that's entirely different, and that's all right. What I'm just trying to do is give you something to relieve that anxiety that you might have in being invited to go to the county jail and talk with this man who has been accused of murder. This man and others might tell you that he is too great a sinner to be saved. Believe it or not, this is more common than what you might imagine, but it is easy to answer. It might come from someone who has had an abortion. It might come from a drug addict who led two or three of his friends into addictions which have destroyed their lives, and they feel, there's nothing for me. I, I have ruined my life and, and their lives. Some sin of some particular person may be less offensive to, to you, but what is it to him? He thinks this is horrible. This is unforgivable. Before I get to a few scriptures, which you should have in that handout, let me give you a word of caution. In this particular case, not the fellow in the jail, but in the case that you are in talking to your friend, you have an affection for this person. And you are tender-hearted toward this person. You may be inclined to try to talk him out of his sinfulness. Do not do that. If he is under conviction for sin, the Lord has brought that upon him. Don't take that away. Don't close the door for the Lord's uh, dealing with this person. Never say, you are not a very great sinner. Because the truth is, he is a very great sinner. If he is under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, be happy about that. And let the Lord work. No matter how terrible he may think he is, actually, he's much worse than that. He may think that he is utterly hopeless. Well, he is. He is. 1 Timothy 1.15 This is a faithful saying, and worthy of everyone's acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Ask your friend what society thinks are the worst sins. <coughs> brought this up last week. Murder will probably be close to the top of that list. Well then, tell him about Saul of Tarsus. A murderer. Someone who openly hated Jesus Christ. A persecutor of men and women. Someone going about arresting young women and sending them to jail or at least trial. He called himself the chiefest of sinners. And yet, God was gracious to him. Completely forgave him. Ask your friend, why did Christ come into the world? If your friend thinks that his sins exceeded Saul's, remind him that in God's word, Saul said he was the very worst of sinners and Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
God forgave that man. God forgave him and cleansed his soul. Tell your friend that essentially there is no sin which Christ cannot forgive. Matthew 10, excuse me, 9, 10 through 13. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisee saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why doth your master eat? Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous. I am come to call sinners to repentance. Tell your friend that publicans were considered to be the worst kind of people on earth by that society. They were traitors. They were tax collectors who were working for the Roman government. They were horrible people as far as the Jews were concerned. But not only did Christ associate with them, he also associated with others who simply uh, are described as sinners. Sinners. Since we aren't told what kind of sinners... Should we somehow limit their sinfulness? Do we have any right to do that? The door is wide open. Sinners. Just that simple. When some self-righteous Jews criticize Christ for association with the worst of sinners, the publicans, and sinners in general, uh, he replied that, it was his business to bring these people to repentance. Your friend's sin, whatever it is, should not hinder him from coming to Christ. That was Jesus' purpose, to deal with sinners. Romans 5, 6-8 For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Ask, for whom did Christ die? Ungodly people, sinful people according to the scripture. Ungodly people have no strength. They have no access to God. They are excluded from the Lord. But God proved his love toward those ungodly people in sending Christ Jesus to die for them, for people like us. Your friend may question God's love, but show him that he shouldn't question that God declared his love. What does the Bible say? The Bible says God demonstrated, commended his love toward us and that Christ died for us. You may doubt that, but don't doubt what the Bible says. There it is. If God didn't love sinners, 
If God didn't love terrible sinners like Saul of Tarsus, no one would ever be forgiven. No one would ever be saved. Before I go on, let me just mention that some of these things which might be mentioned by this person you're speaking to may be brought to your attention because they're trying to divert you from the gospel. That's a possibility. And if that's the case, just try to waylay the question and get back to your sinner. Christ died for sinners. You need to repent and trust him. But some of these questions are genuine. And when that's the case, we need to deal with them. Some may feel they can't be saved because they are lost. Probably no lost person really understands what the Bible means when it says they are lost. But he may feel lost because of his addiction. He cannot defeat it. It just controls his life. He is a slave. Or he may feel lost because he turned away from his family and or his family has turned away from him. He is adrift with no family, no loved ones. And he finds, like the prodigal son, when his resources dry up, his friends are gone as well. He's lost. He may be lost because he's, had, uh, he's tried six different religions up to this point and they've all failed and now he, he's religionless. He's lost. In whatever way he may use the term, take him to Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. Teach him that Jesus often called himself the Son of Man, identifying himself with us in that way. Why did Jesus come into this world? To save that which was lost. You say you're lost? Here is a Savior. Someone to find you. You might take him to Jesus' self describing story about the shepherd who's out looking for and finding his lost sheep. Luke 15. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you having an hundred sheep, if he lose one, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. You say that you are lost? Here is a Savior out looking for lost sheep. There are, going back to our original illustration, there are many murderers in this world. 
And they all need to be saved. It's unlikely, unless you are visiting in a prison, that you will meet someone who admits to using a knife or a pistol or a bat to take another person's life. But with the escalation of talk about abortion, more and more women are coming to understand, middle-aged ladies, that when they were 19 and 20, they took the life of their baby. And by definition, that is murder. They may stubbornly say, that's not life, I didn't commit a murder, but many of them come to see what it is, the evidence is there. I worked alongside an elderly man, this was at the, uh, the mall over here, worked alongside an elderly man who one day, I don't know why, confessed to me that when he was in the army in Korea, he and his buddies would, uh, uh, first of all, demand that these Koreans carry them dry shod over the nearby creek, and then they would turn around and kill these men and women, just murder them, because they were Koreans. This was in the north. They were sympathizing with the Chinese. They were the enemy. No, that was murder. And he had become, in the subsequent years, a hopeless alcoholic. He was miserable, thoroughly despised himself, and wouldn't uh, listen to his need of Christ. You can try to take a person like this back to 1 Timothy 115 where we began you can ask again what is the worst of all sins murder has to be close to the top of that list again why did Christ come into this world to save sinners sometimes a murderer is described as someone with blood on his hands just an illustration a useful scripture in that light might be Isaiah 1.18. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they can be, they shall be like new wool. Another appropriate scripture might be Psalm 51.14. David said in prayer, Deliver me from blood guiltiness. O God, thou God of my salvation. If you use that verse, go back up to the inscription before verse number one and point out the context of David's words there, the occasion. David was a murderer as well. He was guilty of spilling other men's blood. And in his sorrow, he turned to God asking for forgiveness. And if you'd like to continue to study, he was forgiven. The murderer was forgiven. Because he deserved to be? No. Because the Lord is gracious. Yes. 
It doesn't matter what sins you have committed, friend. You can be saved because the Lord is an infinite Savior. Someone might say, I have to become a better person before I can be saved. That's usually just to throw you aside. But okay, maybe he really believes that. Just another expression of the pride that we all have. Inappropriate in every heart, nevertheless. It's also an illustration of man's desire to participate in his own salvation. Because he does have this pride. I can do it. I just need to clean up a little bit before I come to Christ. Before I allow him to finish this salvation. It is a very real difficulty with many people. Some people have been foolishly told that since they're in a second marriage, they can't be saved. I met a man who told me that he needed to quit cigarettes before he could be saved. Come on. Alcohol has been widely used as an excuse not to come to salvation. I have this alcohol problem. Any sin could be used that way, depending on the person involved. But of course, drug addiction is not a greater sin than pornography. And ultimately, lying is a sin just as wicked as murder. It doesn't matter what sin this person has committed. At what point do we say that too many sins has created a problem that Christ cannot solve? Where do we find a scripture which says this sin is worse than all the others and the Lord fails in that? There is nothing like that. Matthew 9, 12 and 13. When Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. Go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Tell your friend, when Jesus pointed to the statement, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, he was saying that God is not interested in whatever you think you have to sacrifice in order for God to save you. Christ came into this world looking for spiritually sick people. And to be more accurate, they're dead. Spiritually dead. He didn't come seeking to save those who consider themselves to be reasonably healthy. I just need this new pill and my cancer will go away. doesn't work that way. There are no sacrifices which we might make that will make us worthy of God's mercy. He comes looking for sinners upon whom he may be merciful. They need to consider themselves sinners. And the Lord doesn't have to look very far. We're surrounded by them. We are them. Ask who does Jesus invite to come to himself? Good people or bad people? The wicked. 
It doesn't matter how bad your sins are. It doesn't matter how bad you are. He invites you to come to him. Turn around. Face the Savior. Luke 15 is the account of the prodigal son. After the boy wasted all the blessings that his father had given to him, he said, I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before thee and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Show your friend that among the lessons in this story, and there are quite a few of them, we have a picture of God's relation to this sinner. All of us have been blessed by God the Father. And essentially we have wasted those blessings spending them on ourselves or on others so that we might get the benefit of being nice to our friends. And like the boy in this story, all the father asks of us is to return to him. Yes. Turn to him. We don't have to get cleaned up. We don't have to get dressed up. Mm. We don't have to have gone to the bank and gotten a... a, a a statement from the, uh, the bank that uh, we will over time repay Father all that we have given to him. The boy returned to his father just as he was at that time. Poor and utterly helpless. Luke 18, verses 10 through 4. <clears throat> However that works. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous, despising others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, and the other that nasty publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, pointing to this fellow, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess, that sort of thing. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much his eyes into heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased. Cast down, and he that humbleth himself shall be lifted up, exalted. Ask, with whom was Christ more pleased? The man who could not see himself as a sinner? Or the man who knew that he was a sinner before God? The Lord Jesus took the second. 
It doesn't matter if you are willing to come to God as you are, repenting, acknowledging, and going to Him in faith, you will be accepted. But if you harbor any pride, if you maintain any self-righteousness, I am good enough for God, you will not be acceptable to the Lord. How about another one? What if I try to be a Christian and I fail? Your friend may know someone who professed to be a Christian for a while, went to church for a while, uh, did all the right things for a while, and then later moved on to some other religion. Or perhaps this person went to church for a while, but then returned to a life of open sin. Your friend may be using this excuse to cover other, other problems, but it could very well be genuine. Jude 24. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Tell your friend, you and I haven't, begin, haven't been given the responsibility of perfection or sinlessness. We don't have to grab a hold of Jesus' coattail and hang there for the rest of our lives until we get to heaven. We are exhorted to trust the Savior to meet our spiritual needs, and He will keep us from falling. 1 Peter 1.5 We are kept by the power of God through faith and a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As I said earlier, maybe these shouldn't be used when we're still trying to speak with someone about the Lord. But if he really has a problem with this question, then we're sort of obligated to go here. By whose power is it that we are kept? By our own? By God's power. Then it's not a question of our strength. It's a question of God's strength. How much strength does God have? We're talking about God. All power. If the Bible says that God has strength to save you, why don't you believe that God can do exactly that? 2 Timothy 1.12 For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that future day. John 10, 28-29, Jesus said, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Ask, about whom was Jesus speaking? The context describes them as sheep. Christ's people, how is it that they shall never die? It must be speaking about spiritual death or eternal death. Physically, everybody dies. Why is it that they shall never die? Because Christ maintains their eternal life. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him 
seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Who is able to save these people? Christ. How is he able to save these people? His abilities. His sacrifice. A variety to this kind of question or excuse is the Christian life's too hard. The Christian life is way too hard. Ask your friend what his perspective is. How does he reach this conclusion? Do you think the Christian life is too hard because of the rules that it lays down? Or the righteous living that's demanded? Maybe your problem is you aren't familiar with real Christianity. Only somebody else's opinion about Christianity. Ask, would you believe what Jesus tells us? Well, what is it that Jesus tells us? Matthew 11.30 For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Don't suggest to your friend that he can be forgiven of his sins and then go on spending the rest of his life doing whatever he chooses to do. God does have standards. Christ does have a yoke. There are Christian burdens. Do you understand what a yoke is? It's an implement which ties together two animals for some sort of work. The believer in Christ is yoked with Christ himself. And together, whatever work or burden there is to be done becomes easy because the Lord is a part of that work. This verse is not talking about how to be saved. It's talking about how to live the Christian life. It's not speaking about how we can be forgiven of our sins. It's, you've raised this question, I can't live the Christian life. Assuming it's there, how do we do it? In Christ's strength. We're not left on our own in trying to do that work which the Lord asks us to do. 1 John 5.3 For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. Why is it that God saves and forgives people? What does this verse say? It's out of his love. It's also under God's love that we keep his commandments. And those commandments are not hard and soul-crushing. They are light and easy because they are coming out of God's love. Actually, it's the alternative that's hard. The way of sin is hard. It may appear to be enjoyable for the short term, but the long-term effects of sin are crushing. Proverbs 13, 15 the way of transgressors is hard. Isaiah fifty-seven twenty-one. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Our lung cancer, cirrhosis of the liver, AIDS, syphilis, easy. These and dozens of other physical ailments 
come directly from the sins that people commit. Are years in prison or rejection by the family joyful or easy? These too may be the results of sin. Of course, an eternity in the lake of fire and brimstone is not uh, exactly easy either. But those who choose to reject the Savior and to live like heathens will spend eternity under the torment of the wrath of God. That's not easy. And another variation of this is that there's too much to give up in order to be a Christian. Admittedly, there are things to be lost when sinners come to Christ. And every one of those things are somehow related to sin. Even if father and mother reject the believing child, it's because father and mother are not believers. A sinful relationship there. Will you lose your job if you turn to Christ? That's a possibility. Then maybe that's not the job you're supposed to have. There are other jobs out there. I think I, think I saw a sign. Someone was hiring. I forget where that was. Mark 8.36 for what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? The only things we have to give up are things which will harm us. Psalm 84.11 For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. What will God not withhold from us? That which he considers... Good. What does God want to, us to give up? Harmful things. And one more. 1 John 2, 15-17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. Ask, what does this scripture say is one major characteristic of the things of this world? They're temporary. They last as long as the world or us in the world. No matter what we love in this world will someday pass away. But who will abide forever? He that does the will of God. And what is the will of God that I'm trying to teach to you? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Amen.